Good morning again, church. And question for the day is, what is this world coming to? Daniel chapter 7 begins really the second part or part 2 of the book of Daniel. Verse, uh, chapters 1 through 6 is all the history, uh, experiences of Daniel that magnify the love of Christ and uh, the work of God in, on behalf of his people. Chapter 7 begins the prophetic section of the book of Daniel. Now, uh, you're going to have a lot of questions about uh, some of the chapters that come next. That's okay. So do I. Some of it is downright weird. And so we'll just take a look at it. And uh, we just want to remember a couple of things. One, uh, do not get sidetracked or fixated on that which God has chosen not to explain Uh, we get in trouble with prophecy when we start guessing and people come up with all kinds of shenanigans and hermeneutical gymnastics to try to have an explanation of things that God just doesn't explain where God is silent we best be silent when God explains then we can have confidence that we understand the meaning So people that love prophecy have a tendency to really go beyond what the Bible itself has declared. So we don't want to do that. But at the same time, we do want to emphasize and highlight the fact that Christ is Lord. He is the ultimate and final king. His kingdom will last forever. That is one of the themes all the way through the book of Daniel that nothing stops the plan of God to bring a savior into the world to save his people. And so here we are in chapter 7, written about 2,500 years ago or more. Uh, This is the book of Daniel. And so Daniel now is the one as the prophet who has this vision, this dream at night. Now, before he had been interpreting dreams of a pagan king. Now, God has given Daniel these dreams. Now, uh, chapter 7, you know, you're not looking at chronological order here. What you'll notice, first of all, in, in the first verse, that we go back to the first year of Belshazzar. So, you know, that in, in looking at uh, the book of Daniel in these first six chapters, uh, Belshazzar is back in chapter 5 and then some other things happen so we're in a prophetic we're given uh, the prophetic section we're given like the time frame here of when it happened so we go actually go back a little bit in time to take a look at this so um, we're going to just talk about an everlasting dominion the main point of Daniel chapter 7 is that he shall reign forever so look at the times of the kingdoms of history is the first section of this vision that Daniel has an explanation of it so let's look at the first eight verses I believe that we're going to be looking at now I'm going to go out of order here just a little bit for the purpose of of uh, logic us being able to kind of gather it in the order that it really happens and so um, we'll skip around this chapter just a little bit so that maybe it makes better sense but look in the first first uh, eight verses here, the times of the kingdoms of history. And so in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, 
the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. And now you know why I get paid the big bucks. So Daniel chapter 7. So let's try to make a little bit of sense of this. And thankfully God gives us some interpretation in this chapter later as well. So you see in verses 1 and 2 the chaos of the times. When we're looking at the times of the kingdom of history. The Bible points out the chaos surrounding the arrival of these kingdoms. When the Bible says... In verse 2, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. What that's talking about is chaos in the world. In the Bible, especially prophetic times of the Bible, when you're reading prophecy in the Bible and they have the word sea, unless they're specifically pointing to a location, most of the time it refers to what we may say, life has gotten stormy. And so it's the same kind of figurative thought that there's turmoil, there's, the things are being stirred up in the world. It's unstable, it's unsteady. Now, the timing of this vision when all this chaos is going on, um, it, when is Daniel given this? Well, in the first year of Belshazzar. So here's why that's important. Um, none of this had happened yet. And you could imagine that uh, when Daniel is, is serving in the, in the king's court here, and the Jewish people have been taken into exile. Or they're held captive in Babylon. And they're being re-educated and brainwashed and uh, forced to uh, adopt the culture of, of the pagans. And we also know that uh, there is a, a, a giant military force coming toward Babylon. And uh, Babylon is hiding behind its walls and feeling that it... Uh, uh, the walls are impenetrable and uh, nobody's going to be able to invade and conquer Babylon, of course, in their thinking. But there's uh, always the question of what's going to happen. What's going to happen to us? And the times feel uncertain and people are not quite sure what's going to happen next. And God gives this prophetic vision to Daniel so that they can be reminded of one thing. God is in control of all of the acts of history, every single one of them, 
good and bad. It is even God who energizes the evil people so that they may carry out their evil, which ultimately brings about the plan of God. You see, we don't like to think that way. We like to think that God steps back somehow out of history when bad people come to the forefront and he permits them to do these things. But I want to just help you with something right now. There is no language that I'm aware of in the Bible that says God allows things. That language doesn't exist. What we find in the Bible is God as the cause agent. That's uncomfortable. We don't have an explanation for that. That's why we don't like it. Now, certainly, we take into account secondary causes, right? But, it, but for all, we're going to look at four kingdoms here. Every one of them are evil. Every one of them. Wicked. And what we find is that God is the one energizing these evil people so that what is evil in their heart can be carried out. Why? Because God has a plan for history. God is not up there just trying to field our foolishness like, oh, oh, where's this one going to go? Oh, there's a foul ball. You know, that's not how God operates. Now, some of you, and I, I didn't bring, I was in Tyler, a uh, little Sunday school class, poor guy. I'll show up in there, but Tyler is, is highly prepared in his teaching, and so he does a great job. And uh, you, you guys did a great job choosing him as as a deacon and Courtney as, as his helper, y'all did a great job, and I have a lot of confidence in Tyler, so Tyler don't mess up. But, but Tyler's in there teaching, you know, and you know we're talking about the providence of God, and you know it's it's we like to think of the providence of God. And I was sitting there thinking about this. We like to think about the providence of God that God is actively at work in the world when things are going our way. When things are not going our way, it's not God doing that. He stepped back, and you know all of that, and now the devil's in control for a while. That's just not true. That's just not how it works. Now, for some of you, you have a kind of a, a quirky thing about your theology. You think, yes, God is active in the works of creation in the natural world. But when it comes to the spiritual world, God steps back and lets man do what he wants to do. Isn't that an odd way of thinking? If that were really true, then people could stop God's plan. What the book of Daniel is showing us that people can't stop. We make choices. It doesn't stop it. It just doesn't. And so we have this chaos and, and it's Belshazzar. And, and, you know, people could be, you could come to the place where you start thinking, well, God is not in control. That God has stepped back. That God's allowing this evil and who knows what's going to happen. And one of these days we hope God jumps back into control. But that's just not the way it is. God is just reassuring his people I got this. And so he gives this vision before any of these things happen. Now, the turmoil in the vision is the wind and the sea. And notice that the wind is from where? It's from heaven. That indicates the source of the chaos. Who's stirring the events of the world? Who is it that's doing it? Ultimately, it's God. Yes, he uses secondary causes. Yes, he uses evil people. He even uses Satan. But ultimately, it's God that provides life, breath, energy, possibility, circumstance. It's God that does all of those things. What is the point of me telling you that? Well, this. You're going to have some good days in life. 
And then you're going to have some hard ones. As a matter of fact, you have a lot of hard ones. Sometimes uh, I tell people, you've got good things going on in your life right now. God's just letting you draw breath till he brings the next thing. So it's it just tough. It, it, but here's what you, you've got to understand. If your way of thinking about God is that God has abandoned you because you're having a hard time, you got it totally wrong. You, got, you have to understand it's God is in control of all those events. God is behind it all. You, you, you've just got to get figured out. Are, are you going to trust him or not trust him in this? Uh, are you going to or not? And, you know, too many times we're looking for, well, God's going to work it out and bring relief. He may never bring relief. You may be dealing with the ugly, all of your ugly life. You have to try to figure out, but what does God want to do in me? What kind of person does he want me to become? Remember, his goal is not to make your life comfortable. His goal is to make your life Christ-like. And so for some of us, we're like really hard-headed people. And so it takes really hard things. Some of y'all are nice and sweet. And God just kind of has to pat you a little bit. The rest of us, we get a good swat on the bottom. It just, just the way it is. Y'all raise kids, you got those kind, right? The chaos, yes we do, Chad, amen. The chaos of the time. Now look at the kingdoms here. And so he, he uh, brings, in verses 3 through 8, there are four great beasts that come up out of the sea. Okay, these are not sea monsters. What, what he's saying here is that out of the midst of times of chaos, these beasts arise. And these beasts here really are kingdoms. Now, the first one that he uh, mentions is the lion in verse 4. We know that that refers to Babylon. Even the Ishtar gate, which I mentioned, I think, last time I preached, whenever that was. Was that last week already? Uh, you know, on the Ishtar gate, all of these symbols of the lions. If you walk down the, the, the uh, avenue of commerce there in Babylon, all these statues of lions. And so this was kind of like their, their uh, mascot, if you will. Now, there were no Buckeye mascots back then. Possibly Wolverine ones, but no Buckeye ones. Just saying. That was just ugly, wasn't it? it was, I was so disappointed in that. It's just not what I thought it was going to be. So the lion. So Babylon. Now notice what he says about this, this, this kingdom, uh, the, uh, in verse four. It had eagle's wings, so that it's, it's quick. And it can move. And so then its wings were plucked off. Referring to what? Well, remember when Nebuchadnezzar, he got his wings clipped, didn't he? He was all high and mighty and flying high. And what did God do? God brought him down to earth. As a matter of fact, for seven years, he lost his mind. And he was out in the field like an animal. But then what happens next? Verse 4. He's lifted up from the ground. And made to stand on two feet like a man. Remember Nebuchadnezzar was out in the field. And he would. During those seven years. He was eating grass like an ox. He was an animal out there. And then God restores his sanity back to him. When he becomes humble enough. And looks up to heaven finally. See the whole time. All Nebuchadnezzar did was look in the mirror. And so God shatters his mirror, puts him down on the ground, and now he looks up to heaven. And when he does, he's made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of man was given to it. And so his mind returns to him. So that's, Babylon is this first beast. And so 
All of Israel would have known about that. Of course, they're living in Babylon at this time. And so they would have related to that. So they have a place to hang on to. Okay, that makes sense. But then he moves to, in verse 5, the bear, the next beast. And this is the Medes and the Persians, Medo-Persia. Now, something you notice about that bear, it's, it's uneven. We had uh, some, some of our church members invite us over to eat bear the other day. And uh, it's pretty good. Uh, it, it really was good. And we, we appreciated that uh, so much. And, and uh, um, I will have to say that um, the wife is the one that killed the bear. The husband said he did. But I hadn't eaten any of that yet. So I'm really kind of not sure. But we'll find out. Okay. So, Amen. So the the bear, so it's a, but it's uneven. It's like two legs are shorter than the other. So it's walking around like this. So what we find is that for the Medes and the Persians, obviously this is a, a conglomeration or confederation, two empires that have come together. But the Persian Empire is much greater than the empire or the kingdom of the Medes. And so you'll also see about that bear. He's ravenous. You know, he has ribs. Between his teeth, like some of you when you go out here to the ribs place. But he's, he's ravenous. And, and the Bible even says, you know, there's a command given to this bear. It's told, arise, devour much flesh. We read about the Persians in the book of Isaiah. How that they care nothing about money. What they care about is slaughter. And they go in and they grab children bash their heads on the bricks, rip open pregnant ladies, impaled men. They have no regard whatsoever. This is why it's so amazing when you read the book of Daniel that the, the, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians were kind to Daniel, Darius and Cyrus. And it's amazing. You see the power of God because Cyrus is the one who permits the beginning of the building of the temple back in Jerusalem. That's why it's just astounding. If, if you would have known the history, if we'd known the history of what kind of people the Medes and Persians were, that they would get permission to do that, you would see the amazing work of God upon somebody's life. They didn't do that. They just didn't. And so they were into total annihilation. And we find also about them that when they do take over Babylon, they invade Babylon. There isn't a lot of bloodshed. Why? Because God's preserving his people inside Babylon. Normally the Persians just go in and just wipe them out. Just, they don't care. No regard. And so God here is showing the, the brutality and the hunger and thirst for blood that this kingdom has. And so it's going to rise. And it hasn't happened yet, but it's getting ready to happen. Now in verse 6, you have the next beast, the leopard. And his characteristics. Uh, what, what, what do you know about leopards? Well, four wings uh, of a bird on its back. So we know the swiftness of leopards. And he had four heads as well. So this is a four-headed leopard with four wings. Okay, now if you saw that in your dream, would you be slightly disturbed when he woke up? Well, if you related to that dream to someone, people would say you are slightly disturbed when you relayed that dream. So this is really a weird thing. So, but, but it means something. 
The leopard is, represents Greece, the kingdom of Greece. And this leopard is Alexander the Great. He conquered the known world by the age of 32. And legend says that he sat down and cried because there were no kingdoms to conquer. He had reached the pinnacle of life by the age of 32. Now we know that, um, so that would be what the wings stand for. He's twice as fast as Babylon was in conquering. But also he has four heads. And what we, what we find in history is that Alexander the Great, he dies at an early age. His wife and his son are killed. And so the four generals that had ruled under him, they arise and they have an agreement to rule the four different segments of his kingdom. They divide it up among themselves. And that would be the four heads of the leopard. And you see how Daniel is prophesying this a couple of hundred years before it comes to pass. Then in verses 7 and 8, we have... This is an interesting one. I just call it the horrible beast. Because Daniel says that when he's looking at this fourth beast, it's terrifying, dreadful, and so on. And he says in verse 7, it's different from all the beasts before it. And what Daniel's saying is there's nothing like this. There's no animal that I can compare to this fourth beast. It defies animal likeness. There's no animal illustration. There's nothing ever been like it before. And characteristics of this empire, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in just a moment, but it's strength, iron teeth in this animal or this beast of whatever kind it is. It crushes underneath its feet anything that gets in its way. It has ten horns on its head. So it's an odd looking thing. And so this answers to the Roman Empire. And so uh, this beast illustrates or explains that empire. And we'll look at the details now of this Roman Empire because it has significance in, in history. So I, I want us to move to that. Now those are that's just some of the details of the, the kingdom. And you see that God is just giving Daniel step by step. These are the kingdoms that are going to come. You're living in Babylon now. Next, in just a short period of time, will come the Medes and the Persians. But that won't be the end of the story. Then will come the Greek Empire. Then after that will come the Roman Empire. So these are right through history and you can trace it. So God is giving his people the faith that they need to know that he is in control of all things. Now look at the terror though of this fourth empire and I want us to jump down to verse 15 for a few moments and and in this section of scripture we have the interpretation of Daniel's dream and Daniel asks more about this fourth beast this is the one that he's puzzled about he doesn't really understand what's going on so let's let's read these verses and then we'll go back and comment upon them Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. See how I knew that? But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever and ever. 
If you, you have your copy of God's word right now, you really ought to highlight verse 18 because it's central to everything else. It's the anchor in the midst of all of this. It's, it's what holds everything together. And, 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 and I'll talk about this a little bit more, but let me just go ahead and say it in case I forget. This is the verse that anchors you in our time as well. See, kingdoms are going to arise. Rulers are going to rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall. And God will bring people to prominence and then he will bring them down. He'll bring them to prominence. He'll bring them down. And if you keep your eye up on Capitol Hill, you'll miss the one who died on a hill. You see, you, 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 you put all your hope in that stuff and you, you just try to figure it all out. And when things go well, if the Dow Jones is up, your heart is up. If it's down, it's, you're down. If some new program's introduced where you get free money, your heart is up. If a program's introduced where taxes are raised, your heart goes down. And see, it can be the same program. It just depends on which side of the coin you're on. And so you begin to look at people and, and, and you, you get fixated on that stuff. And, and you, you, you can't do that. We have to live in the midst of it. Yes, we want to be wise. Yes, I'm a student of history. I'm a student of government. I, I enjoy all those things. I read about politics. But here's the thing. Here's what I know. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. That's what I know. So no matter what happens among the people that don't know what they're doing on Capitol Hill, this is what I always know. And it will steady your heart and steady your mind and give you confidence in a chaotic world. That's what we need in these days. Now, the terror of the kingdom. And so on we go. Verse 19, then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away. To be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven. Shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. 
So the terror of the kingdom of iniquity. This kingdom has a ruthless military. Verses 15 through 19 talk about this fourth beast and its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze and how it just tramples down everything that's in its way. Then also we see this, not only the ruthless military, but there is a European confederacy here. The ten horns that were on its head speak of ten kings. We know about the ancient Roman Empire. That though it was centered in Rome, obviously. It consisted of Germany, France, Spain, Great Britain. So there's some kind of European confederacy that's centered in Rome here. Now... There's a lot of controversy surrounding the interpretation of these verses. Here's the question, the pivotal question here. Is this the Roman Empire of Christ's time on earth? If that's what this is, then we would have to assume that when Christ puts this down and the kingdom become the possession of the saints... It would be talking about the ascension of Jesus and the kingdom of God has come and the rule of Christ has now come and the world is going to be dominated by Christianity. That we would have to assume that would be the the idea here. The other option on this, is this the resurrected Roman Empire of the future? And so I have the answer. Yes, both. You know, in prophecy, what we forget is in prophecy, many, many times God takes that which is present and real and historical and then from that telescopes out to the future to something that's like what he's talking about in, the pres- in present history. Many times he does that. I mean, he'll speak of David almost as if David is the Messiah. But he's talking about Christ in the Psalms. We have to also realize he does this a lot in the Old Testament. God will be talking about Israel. And he's talking about literal, political Israel. But in the midst of all of that, he's talking about Israel. He's talking about the ancient church. He's talking about those who are really the elect out of Israel. And they're the true Israel, as Paul says. And so many times, God is doing both of those at the same time. It's like, he's looking at, in prophecy, you're looking at this hill, and it's real. But you look out over the top of it, and you see the mountain. He's talking about both. Near history, and future history. Both things. And so, the the people of literal, political Israel... They're going to be able to say to themselves, well, it's the Roman Empire that has come and crushes Israel and takes over and wipes out the temple. And that's true. But what they fail to see because they're not regenerate, only those like Daniel who truly knew Christ can look beyond it. And he's able to look beyond it and say, yes, there is a Roman Empire that's coming. But it doesn't answer to all the things that are in this prophecy. There are things in this prophecy that are beyond anything that has ever happened. And so that's what we're looking at here. Now, 
The number 10 is not definite in prophecy. So don't be trying to line up. You know, here are the 10 kings. You know, Czechoslovakia, you know, whatever. Don't, don't, be, don't be doing that. Because in prophecy, the number 10 just means completeness. It means power. So there are, there's a, a number of kings that are serving in a confederacy. They're working together in some kind of union, some kind of European union. But while that thing is formed, we see that there is a king that arises that's different from the rest of them. And this one that first comes up as a little horn that's on the head of this beast, what it does is it plucks up three of the horns. What happens is three of the kings do not want to bow to the authority of this new horn and he executes them. He's done and he takes over their property, takes over their area, their kingdoms. And we also see about this little horn, he says he's greater than his companions and he has a mouth. He's a mouthy thing. He speaks great things so he's able to manipulate people and get them to believe things and to believe in him. He's very charismatic. Very attractive to people. People want to hear him. People want to listen to him. And he also is the kind of person that speaks things against God. He's a blasphemer. He slanders God. And he makes fun of people who trust in him. Now his godless authority is really focused on in verses 20 through 28. He overthrows the three kings in verse 20 as I said. He speaks great things. Verses 20, verse 25 speaks, uh, talks about him speaking against God. He has a hatred of God's people, of the saints, verses 21 and 25. Verse, uh, he also outlaws religious holidays in the word of God. In verse 25, it speaks of, uh, he, he seeks to change the times and the laws. And so it's talking, the word times there means religious, really religious holidays. And speaking specifically of Christian holidays, it would be. And so then something else about him is he's going to have unrivaled power for a period of time. Verse 25 says, for a time, times, and half a time. Other places in the Bible where that, that particular phrase is used, that description, it's three and a half years. So what I understand the scripture to explain or to mean in this period of time, if I can say this briefly, we only have a few minutes, so not a lot of detail here, but this. At some appointed time, Christ will come in the clouds and call out his church, those who are really born again from out of here, out of the earth. Then we'll begin the, really the rule of the Antichrist in this world. And for the first three and a half years, he's going to play nice. And he's, he's going to work it so that he's going to be able to gain power and influence by negotiation and by compromise and all of those things. But then somewhere in the middle point of there at, at about a three and a half year mark, he's going to get mean. And he's going to declare war on those who have become followers of Jesus after the church has left the scene. A lot of those are going to be people from a Jewish background that are going to come to Christ during that period of time. And when that happens, somewhere around that period of time, he's going to turn violent. And so for three and a half years, he is going to have a policy that hunts those down who are followers of Jesus, the Messiah.
And his goal is to annihilate them from the face of the planet. So that's going to happen for three. So this is the Antichrist. This little horn that you're looking at here is the Antichrist. Now, here's the um, things I get about the Antichrist. Pastor, do you think Joe Biden's the Antichrist? No, I don't. Well, do you know what his name spells backwards? You know, no, I don't. Do you know if you say his kid's name backwards real fast three times, it sounds like Satan, Satan, Satan. You know, and so I'm like, you know, if you add up all the numbers of his name, it's, it, it turns out to be this number. If you divide that number by 12 months, multiply it by three, and, and put in a seven and minus two, guess what you have? I don't know what. The Antichrist, you know. And so I'm like, okay, um, so no, Joe Biden's not the Antichrist. You should be relieved to know that. Whew. So, uh, yeah, so yeah, he's not European, so it doesn't, it doesn't fly. Okay, so the Antichrist is not coming from this area of the world. But I do remind you that John said there are many, many Antichrists even among us now. And so there are those who act Antichrist. Okay, they act like a little Antichrist, uh, lowercase a. But the Antichrist, the one that's going to rule the world at the end of, of, of the, of right before the millennial kingdom of Christ on this earth, uh, he's going to come from that area of the world. So that's what you're looking at. This is the, the time of the Antichrist and the Bible speaks of that. Now, you may have a different scheme of the end times, like you understand things differently, that they're saying things differently in some way. Um, that's, that's fine. That, that's okay. Uh, you know, a lot of people get to walk around wrong. So it's okay. You can do that. But, but be gracious to each other on this stuff because it, it is mysterious and we don't have all the answers. Um, and so, there, but there are some definites that we do know. Now, the triumph of the kingdom of eternity. Let's go back now to verses 9 through 14. I wanted to jump over to 15 and following because it explains really what we read about in verses 1 through 8. So in the middle of that, what's pivotal, what's like the, the nail that has everything held down is verses 9 through 14. And here we have the triumph of the kingdom of eternity. Daniel says, you know, look, look in verse 8 after he's talking about this antichrist figure and mouth speaking great things. The next thing Daniel sees is this, as I looked. Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Does God look like he's in a state of emergency here? His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold. With the clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the condemnation of the beast is spoken of in verses 9 through 12. The beast is killed. Now the beast here uh, in the book of the Revelation we see this as well. Sometimes the beast is the kingdom. But also the beast is used to describe the leader of the kingdom. And so here we have the Antichrist and his kingdom is destroyed the beast is killed judgment in these verses thrones ancient of days takes his seat we have fire fiery flames all of these things we have uh, its wheels were burning fire and some of these things are strange a fire a stream of fire issued and came out from before him and the court sat in judgment the books were open so what we see here is judgment and this judgment is on the Antichrist. And it could be his, both his judgment at the beginning of the millennial reign, a thousand year reign of Christ upon this earth, as well as the final judgment on Satan and the rest of the enemies of Christ at the end of the 1,000 year reign of Christ. Now we also see symbols here. There's white hair of, you know, the Ancient of Days, uh, a white robe speaking of his righteousness in his judgment we have wheels of fire on his throne and that seems kind of funny to us but ancient kings often had their throne chair on wheels and so the fire means judgment stream of fire it's unstoppable kind of judgment and then there's books and we see the books were opened do you know this no one gains heaven by good works the books are the works of people. And did you know there's not a single work in the book of works that is a good work? Not one. Well, pastor, I've done some things good. How can that be? No, you haven't. See, Christian, let me explain something to us. Let's say there's someone in our community that is, let's say they're starving. If a Christian goes and gives them food, it's a good work. If a pagan does it, it's not a good work. Not before God. Now, do I want the pagan to go give him food? Yeah, because I want the person to survive. And on a, on a human level, if we're speaking on a human level, we could say that was a good thing to do. It's a nice thing to do. And it is. But if we're talking about the judgment of God upon our works, it is not a good work. You say, how can that be? It's the same thing. Let me explain it to you. Christ is our sanctification. And so with Christ living in us, what happens is, even though as a Christian, every work that we have is tainted in some way by our own sin. It's under the name of Christ. So even our works get cleansed before the throne of God. And so God can look on those works as good works because they come through Christ. See, Christ is like the filter that filters all the junk out of the water. And so that when it gets to the throne room, it's pure, even though we know that it was dirty when it left our heart. See, lost people don't have that. They don't have the filter of the blood of Christ on their works. They just present something from their dirty hands, their dirty, sinful, leprous hands. And it's always dirty before God. And it never avails them of anything. 
That's why lost people get confused. They think, I've done some good things. Why wouldn't God accept me? No, you haven't. Everything that you've done is tainted by sin. You're like, well, so is yours. You're a Christian, right? But I've got the blood of Jesus that's cleansing it. See, you don't have that. You don't have it. So everything you do is still dirty. It's still ugly. And so the books are opened on these people. And there's no advocate. There's no lawyer. There's no one standing with them. See, as a Christian, there's someone standing with us. Not only that, when the books are opened, every work that we've ever done has been cleansed by Jesus. And it looks like a record of the works of Jesus. And God will never find a flaw in the works of His Son. Do you see? Do you see how that works? All all through Him. So these people are being judged. Every motive for everything they've ever done hasn't been for the glory of God. And so we find that God here publicly is verifying His own justice. And the beast who rules the world for seven years loses his soul in eternity. He may rule the White House for eight years, but when the books are opened, God cares not who you think you were on this earth. He cares not about your status, education, economic attainment. He cares nothing of those things. He's going to look in the books. Every thought. Every intention. Every action. Scrutinized by his holy eyes. Now. The coronation of the king. Verses 13 and 14. We have here. The clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient days. Now, this title, son of man, Jesus uses it to refer to himself. And certainly it does speak of the humanity of Christ. But also this, it speaks to his deity and his role as Messiah. Because when Jesus said to the Pharisees at his own trial, when they're trying to judge him, He said, they said, are you, they said to him, are you the one? Are you the blessed of God? And he said, you'll see the son of man coming the clouds of his glory. Where did Jesus get that? Right here. This is the verse he was quoting to them. And that's when they lost their mind. So somehow in the Jewish mind, there is some concept of the Trinity. They just haven't figured it out yet. Because they knew enough to know, if he says he's the son of man, that he's claiming to be God. And so here's, this is what we have. We have Jesus before the Father. See, Jesus condescended. He, he's always existed as the son of God. But he came to be known as Jesus when he condescended, took on a human body, came to earth, lived here with a human nature as well as his divine nature. Two natures in one person. And so now he presents back to the Father his work on the cross of the resurrection. And so we see the picture of him coming here. And he comes to the ancient of days and he's presented. 
And what is the Father's response to the work of Jesus on behalf of sinners? To Him is given dominion, glory, and kingdom. All peoples will worship Him. Verse 13 is the subject of more scholarly papers than any verse in the book of Daniel. Because depending on how you read it determines what you think of Christ. But obviously his deity is meant here. He's, he's coming clouds, given dominion. Uh, Mark 14, he quotes this. John 12, 34. Humanity, the Son of Man. His authority in verse 14. And then his generosity as he turns around and shares it with his people. He doesn't just say to his saints, Now, I'm the king and you all sit at my feet. The king of eternity says, you're my brothers. Come and share it with me. That's the end of the story. That's how it all turns out. And so at the beginning of this vision, we have God's people in turmoil. We have God's people concerned. We have God's people worried. Because lots of bad things are going on. And God is telling them there are going to be some other things going to happen too. And you're not going to believe how awful it's going to be. But let me assure you of something. Every step that the Persian army takes is orchestrated by me. And every piece of ground that Alexander the Great will take, it's orchestrated by me. And the Roman Empire, when it comes and crushes everyone around it, it's all orchestrated by me. And when that Roman-like empire comes at the end of times and the rise of the Antichrist and his rule and reign for seven years, it's all orchestrated by me. Because in the end, it all leads to one place. It all is going to lead to this place where he who has come to the Ancient of Days will have dominion and glory and a kingdom and his kingdom shall never be destroyed. That's where the world is going. Dear Christian, have confidence in times of uncertainty and times of chaos. Whether it's a time in your life that's chaotic and you can't make sense of it. Or whether the world around you is falling apart. I promise you it isn't. I promise you that God is orchestrating every event and every step and every second and every moment. Because it's all leading to the feet of Jesus. And you are an insider. Because in verse 18, to say it one more time, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and forever. I ask you to consider some things from this. One, consider the books. There are people who sit in judgment on God today. Perhaps you're one of them. And you sit in judgment upon Him. And you determine what you think God ought to do. Whether it's in your life or in the world. You determine how He ought to do it. And if He doesn't do it that way, then you're going you're gonna to be mad at God. And you're going to show Him some things. You've already decided what he ought to 
do in your life. You have decided what he ought to overlook in your life. And not hold you accountable for. See, so many people, and perhaps you're one of them. You think that when court is in session, you're going to sit on the throne and you're going to get to judge whether God has treated you fairly or not. But I want to remind you that when you look at that picture of the books in the book of Daniel, just ask yourself this question. In that picture, where are you and where is God? Our works before God are not only not good enough, they're utterly rejected by Him. Inadmissible. Proving nothing about ourselves except the depth of our sinfulness. That's all our good works prove. Good works motivated and covered by our own sinfulness will never amount to anything in the courtroom of God. There's only one thing that that matters. There's only one thing that makes any difference. In the book of the Revelation, we have a replay, a recounting of this. A great white throne. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Same result. There's none righteous. No, not one. The sea gave up the dead. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. They were judged. Each of them according to what they had done. But another book is opened. Which is the book of life. And here's the issue. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. Too many people think that they're recording enough in the book of good works to merit salvation from God and God has clearly shown us that that does not happen and they are failing to do the one thing that they must do have their name written in the Lamb's book of life is your name written there in the page bright and fair in the book of God's kingdom Is your name written there? There's only one way to have your name written in that book. It's with the ink pen of the Lord Jesus filled with his blood. That's the only way. As long as you keep trying to build your own kingdom. Do things your own way. Determine that you're going to earn salvation. You're going to earn heaven. You will die and go to hell. You just will. But if you'll drop that scenario and just say, okay, I'm done with it. At some point, you just got to dust it off and say, I can't. I need a Savior. I can't save myself. And Christ is the Son of God and He's done it for me. Why would I not run to Him? Why would I not run and get help? And go to Him and put your trust upon Him. Do you trust Him for that? Do you trust Him this much? That you believe that he'll write your name there if you'll believe on him. If you'll trust him with your life. Just hand it over to him. If you'll do that, he'll write your name there. Saints of God, just a reminder once again. Here's what we get out of this book. The kingdom is ours. 
it's ours. You may not have anything in this life. Oh, stop worrying about all of that. Your life consists of more than what you accumulate, does it not? Yeah. Some of you think God has shortchanged you because he had made it easy in this life. My friend, this life is for a short time. Saints of God, the kingdom is ours. Whether you today have a great job or you're unemployed, here's the thing about it. The kingdom is yours and you're one of the richest people on this planet. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for giving us your word. I pray that it would find lodging in our heart. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.